Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hi, Sam. Hi, Laurie. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Yes, I'm all right. On the, on the, feels like a straight run to Christmas now, almost there. Yes, we're about less than 20 days away. So <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be helping some probably ever more frantic shoppers at the bookshop this weekend, trying to find all of those perfect holiday gifts. Oh yeah, it's your busy time, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I always love the customers that come in and say, you know, I need something for my brother's new girlfriend, but I don't even know if she reads. So can you give me a recommendation? So it's kind of... (laughs) Sounds like someone who needs a copy of Duck's new report. Precisely. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's sometimes we get some very funny requests, but you know, we always try to help everyone. And I do believe that a book is the best gift. Oh yes. Yeah. Two books. In fact, (laughs) as many books as you want to buy. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun to help people pick books for all different types of readers and non-readers too. I'm sure it is. So what's happening over there? Well, this week it's Sad news in the UK particularly, but around the world, the, well, what am I going to call him? The poet, the performance poet, actor, dub, musician, and all-round big personality, Benjamin Zephaniah, has died, sadly. And he was, I think I read 65 when, when he died, but he's been kind of a big deal in the UK for decades, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a shock. I felt it as a shock. I felt really sad. He's just been a big presence. And honestly, I never knew loads about him. I didn't buy his books. I never read enough of his poetry, but you know, he's always there even so, and always an interesting, provocative often, and also very funny presence. And yeah, it felt really sad that I almost feel like, oh gosh, I kind of took him for granted and didn't dig into what he'd done and now he's gone. But yeah, he was really an impressive guy. The story is he grew up in Birmingham, which he called a cold suburb of Jamaica where he lived. And but you know, one of the things he said, and this has been repeated in a lot of his obituaries, is that, you know, his biggest achievement was not being shot before the age of 30, because he kind of had a difficult time because he was dyslexic, and then, you know, drifted into crime and gang stuff, but then pulled himself away from it and out of it by writing this um, very direct, very impressive poetry that you know, it's the kind of deceptively simple, a lot of the stuff he did, it just speaks really clearly and loudly to people. And very quickly, I think 1980, his first book came out. So I'll have been three years old then, which is why he's always been a fixture, as far as I'm concerned, you know, he's always been around and speaking to people of all ages as well. So he did a lot of stuff on kids TV, but also a lot of really strongly political material. And he worked this very unusual trick of becoming a kind of a national treasure, this much beloved, very approachable, you know, he's very famous for his big smile, but also someone who didn't compromise his politics and 
wrote fierce poems about police brutality and the way you know people from his community were treated by the police and always kept his edge and spike as well as making people feel happy. Yeah, and it sounds like he's spoken to many generations in the UK. I think you mentioned that your daughter was reading some poetry by him. Yeah, I mean he's on the he's very often on the exam syllabuses and so yeah, everyone gets to encounter him in one way or another. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. It's a big loss. Someone that's that prominent in the cultural sphere and just you're used to being seeing that person as, as a presence, you know, and to be gone suddenly. 65 seems younger every year to me. So, <laughs> yeah, that's sad. I did note that there was an obituary in the New York Times that I saw today of him. So, yeah, thanks for talking about him. And I think I need to check out some of his poetry. Yeah. Well, I had the same feeling. I should actually make the effort to read more than the odd one or two here and there. I should I should get a few of his books. It is always a little bit of a feeling of guilt when we have these writers in our midst that, you know, when they die, you suddenly feel like, oh, I should have read more. And now I really feel, you know, a more urgent need to read these people. But it happens. Yeah, you can't read everything. You can try. But... <laughs> <laughs> So you will fail. You will fail miserably. So what else, Sam? Well, why don't you tell us? Because talking of the New York Times, I saw this very interesting article towards the beginning of this week. I think it ran on, what was it? Tuesday, the December the 4th. So what is this? Well, it might be the only time my name is ever mentioned in the New York Times. <laughs> so... So a little bit of, you know, half a second of fame for me, I guess. Very well-deserved fame, let me say, because <laughs> I'm going to embarrass you and pause you because this is something really great. Anyway. Thank you. But it's really, my part in it is quite small. We are forming or have formed a prize here in the United States where a jury of incarcerated individuals will judge a literary prize. And the three primary organizations that are involved in this are the National Book Foundation, which runs the National Book Awards, the Center for Court Innovation or Center for Justice Innovation, I think is what they changed their name to, an organization that deals with kind of programs for incarcerated individuals, and then a really great program called Freedom Reads that puts libraries in prisons. And yeah, so... Over the next six months, we're going to be distributing books to prisons. We're going to be doing programming where authors will go into facilities and talk about their books to people there. There will be 25 judges of incarcerated people that will judge amongst four titles for a winner. And the number of facilities will be 24 to start this enterprise. It's going to be a pilot project for our first year, and we hope to be in many, many other prisons in the future. We've got all male facilities involved and some female only facilities involved. And the great inspiration for this was the Inmates Goncourt in France, which for I think maybe three or four years now has done the Goncourt Prize for inmates. So it's a really fun and neat thing that they do where they let incarcerated people determine what they would have voted on for the Goncourt Prize. We've had to change it a little bit here in the U.S. 
One of the logistical difficulties that we ran into is that you can't take hardcover books into many U.S. prisons. So we had to go back about two years to make sure that the books that the folks would be judging would be actually in soft cover so that they could read them and talk about them. And yeah, it's exciting. So where did the books come from? What's the criteria? So we picked books from the 2022 finalist list for the National Book Award. And we had a selection committee that broke that list of a couple dozen titles down to the four that will be the books that the broader population of incarcerated people will be reading, considering, hearing programming about, and then ultimately voting on. The selection committee was comprised of people that are both currently in jail, people that were in jail or now are out of jail, and some other writers and people that are involved in prison programs around the country. Okay, great. And how are the judges selected? Well, the facilities will be selecting 25 judges amongst the population there. We're leaning heavily on the prison librarians. They seem to have a really good sense. And in fact, two prison librarians were on our selection committee to get the total number of titles down to four. They have a sense of who the big readers are and, you know, kind of who within that population would be a good candidate to kind of participate in this. But we very much want this to encompass as many people as possible that might be interested in learning about these books, reading about the books. So Freedom Reads will be distributing not only books to the 25 judges in each of the 24 facilities, but they'll also be donating several copies of each of the titles to the library in that facility. So we're hoping that really everyone can enjoy and talk about these books. Yeah, how tremendous. And how great for the authors and publishers on the list as well that their books get an extra boost a couple of years later. And then what a thing to win. It's going to be great. Yeah, we've heard that we didn't tell the authors in advance that their book had been selected for the prize. And when they read the New York Times article, we've heard back from some of those authors and they're just thrilled. They think it's a really neat kind of idea that their books would be considered by, you know, not just pontificating critics and and the literati, but, you know, real people, you know. And one of the big things that we wanted to to help do was shine a light on the fact that people that are incarcerated today are likely to be our neighbors, you know, a few years from now. They're part of our society. It's important to get them into the cultural conversation that we all engage in, but, you know, to kind of highlight the fact that they are part of our community. And so it's an exciting initiative. I'm I'm very happy to be part of it. Oh, that's brilliant. I feel quite emotional just hearing about it. How wonderful. And remind us when the announcement is, when we find out about the winners. The winner will be announced, I believe, in early June. Brilliant. Something to look forward to. Yeah, we've got some work to do. In the meantime, the prisons that are taking part in this pilot are all over the country, including as far flung as North Dakota. So yeah, there'll be some traveling involved, I think, for a lot of the people that will be working on this. Right. Wow. And this is just the pilot. So Yes. Yeah, we hope to... Something that can grow and grow too. Yeah, we're starting it in six states. Like I said, 24 facilities total. But yeah, the dream is to have it in all the states. So Yeah, fantastic. Great. Well, thanks for asking about it, Sam. Oh, it's a pleasure. It just sounds just wonderful. Well, you have a good weekend and we'll talk soon. Yeah, speak to you soon. Bye. 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 
Hello, Across the Pond listeners. I'm delighted today to have with us Don Gilmore. He's going to be speaking to us about his quietly provocative novel, Breaking and Entering. Welcome, Don. Thank you for having me. We're pleased to have you. And to start off, I'd just like to say that Breaking and Entering is Biblioasis submission for the 2023 Republic of Consciousness Prize for the U.S. and Canada. So that's great. And we're very pleased to have you with us. And I thought, Don, maybe we would start with your reading of, I think you want to read from us for the prologue to the novel. Yeah, I'll just read the short prologue here. At night, the street regained its innocence, everything still and stored away. A few lights were on, mostly for security, the people asleep, the air heavy and unmoving, the sound of air conditioning units rattling, wheezing, struggling, a symphony, a few cats moving languidly, the line of cars, dark and foreign. There were so few lawns now, Everyone had prairie grass or Japanese maples or ajuga, straw-colored and dry. Once inside, you saw the furniture, the incomplete set of dishes, the big screen. In the basements were discarded toys and the faint smell of mold. The third floor is abandoned, impossible to keep cool in this weather. The shoes lined up near the door, always more than anyone could practically use. The keys in a ceramic bowl they'd brought back from Seville or Istanbul. Coats for every kind of weather except what they had right now, lined up on hooks waiting for fall. On the refrigerators, reminders and clever quotes held by magnetic bumblebees. On the calendars, days circled in red. Inside the cupboards were well-intentioned juicers and panini makers idle for a year. But you needed to look farther than that. Into the drawers that held vibrating toys, into the hard drives that held plans and bank accounts and fetishes, into closets containing expensive dresses bought on sale and never worn, revealing journals and medical histories and old love letters tied quaintly with string. And finally, you had to look into those sleeping heads, thoughts of adultery, wayward urges, unnamed panic, standing naked in front of the school assembly again trying to fly but having some trouble, pursued by something lumbering and dangerous. The fear of poverty, of failure, the future. Afraid for their vulnerable children and their suddenly vulnerable parents. And the pragmatic nagging. Did I turn off the stove? You did. And finally, a longing that was impossible to name. An ache that starts in your heart and spreads. Waves of something. A heavy feeling that brings tears. A mix of nostalgia. Old Yeller getting in the puss again, and sadness and unmoored memories floating just out of reach. Every house held this, but you only took what was valuable. That was the key. Great, thank you. So, Laurie started by describing the book as quietly provocative. I rarely disagree with Laurie, but actually I think it's just quite provocative full stop. It really, well, provoked me. (laughs) It's upsetting in the best possible way. And I wanted to kick off that idea by going, uh, rewinding from the prologue, in fact, to the the quotes you provide right at the start. And normally my eyes drift over them, I have to admit. But the second of the two you give really brought me up short. So uh, if you don't mind me quoting your quote that you are, I'll read it out. The desire to make off with the substance of others is the foremost, the most legitimate passion. 
nature has bred into us, and without doubt, the most agreeable one. So I read that and thought, well, who the hell said that? And then, of course, the answer is that this quote comes from Donatien Alphonse Francois, Marquis de Sade. So can you tell us a bit about how how and why you chose that quote and then where it fits in with the, the general ideas in this book? Well, you know, I was just sort of fishing around for quotes and I stumbled on that one. And I had no idea he'd said an awful lot of outrageous things, but I didn't know about this one. And I thought, well, this sort of fits in perfectly with the theme of the book. And, you know, I was thinking of, you know, Gore Vidal has that quote where he said, you know, it's not enough for him to succeed. You know, his friends have to fail in order to kind of bring happiness. And I thought that there is this sort of zero sum approach to the world, especially these days, and that this quote might be kind of fitting for that. For sure, for sure. And so this, this zero sum game that you describe, I mean, the book, it's not dystopian exactly. But we're not in a good place. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that that setting in Toronto and where we are, what's happening around. Well, I, you know, I sort of gave the main character, B, I gave her a lot of my own climate anxieties. And, you know, checking the melt rate of glaciers and, you know, looking up and see what the hottest city in the world is on any given day. And I thought about writing something more dystopian, but I didn't really want to go into, you know, the near future where we're all kind of huddled over 40 gallon drums of burning trash and, you know, I was straggling along the, the abandoned highways. But I thought to look at it, just what was happening right now in terms of, you know, here and where, you know, it is a northern climate, but there's a nervousness that hits the city as summer arrives because we actually got off pretty easily last summer. But the summer before that and a few summers before that, you know, you'd have like 30 or 35 days that were over 30 degrees, which, you know, is, I guess, around 100 in Fahrenheit now. And, you know, there's a legitimate fear of this, of what's coming every summer and the wildfires and the traffic in Toronto. There's a, you know, a scene in the book where they're in a 12 lane highway that runs across the top of the city is completely stopped. And, you know, it's only a slight exaggeration of the traffic here. You know, we often beat out Los Angeles on those sort of 10 worst cities in North America for traffic lists. And I drove my daughter across town yesterday and it was, you know, it was like a scene out of Mad Max. You know, the roads are closed and drivers are going through red lights. And it's just, there's this sort of madness that's going on out there. And I just feel like, you know, we're on the brink of something much madder, basically. Yeah, I suppose it's not what we normally associate with Canada, I've, I've actually been in the Toronto traffic myself, so I, I know what you're talking about. But um, one of the one of the things that the characters in your book talk about, in fact, is you know this the idea of Canada being a place full of people who are not going to erupt into violence and who do not have the same gun problems as they do in the states. But that has been pushed in your book too, as well, hasn't it? Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's a good thing we have strict gun laws. I think if everyone had a gun in their glove compartment, you know, they would just be a, a shootout every day. I mean, I think, you know, for the most part, the, you know, it's been called the peaceable kingdom. And I think in many ways it remains that. But you can kind of feel we're building towards something else. And I just wanted to try and capture that sense of there's a like a sense of foreboding, I guess, that I certainly feel and I know others feel here in Toronto. Let's talk about your main character here, B. And in particular, I wanted to look at her marriage. So I thought it was really interesting and it felt 
authentic to me, the way that you depicted B and Sang's marriage. There's not a lot of open hostility, it seemed to me. I mean, for the most part, they're talking, they're eating dinner together at home, they're going to, you know, the movies, but there's not a connectedness really between them either. And I wanted to ask whether this was just a product of two middle-aged people that are disappointed with their lives and therefore have disconnected? Or what do you want us to know about this couple and their relationship? Well, you know, I, I just felt there's a moment, and I just would say it's not autobiographical to start with, but, you know, a moment in marriages where there's a line about how at some point we have young kids and everyone's kind of raising their young kids and they're renovating their kitchens. And there's this sort of hopeful march forward into the future. And then, then the future kind of arrives and your kids grow up and they move about and you're just left with what you began with, the two of you. And at that point, I think it's sort of a crucible. And I think that, I mean, the pandemic was a kind of crucible where you now we're all stuck with each other inside all the time. And I felt it was a version of that. And and you examine that and there's, you know, triumphs and disappointments. And in the case of B, where nothing is terrible, but everything's just a little bit stale, you know, their business isn't going great. The marriage isn't terrible, but it's not wonderful. And she's just in this sort of gray area area that I think, you know, a number of people are in at that age. Yeah. B's going through a lot, you know, and again, not anything that seems all that extraordinary, you know, a, a mother with dementia, a sibling that she talks to, but argues with a lot, a kid that wants to quit college, a husband who seems detached and, and preoccupied. But let's get into, I guess, the most provocative, I don't want to call it quietly provocative, provocative again, because Sam disagrees. But the most provocative of the provocativeness, I guess, in the novel is B's new hobby, which is lock picking, going into people's homes, not for the purpose really of necessarily taking things, but I think as she explains it at one point, as a means of escape, escape from maybe her own life and maybe to be a bit of a voyeur into other people's lives. Yeah. And I think you know, where that came from is years ago, I wrote a short story about a young man who breaks into houses for a living, basically. But he's living with a partner, thinks he works for a security company. So every morning he leaves and goes to work and tells her he's working at the security company. He comes back and he has these anecdotes about people at work and stuff. It's all completely fabricated. And the idea was, you know, we may not know as much about our partners as we think we do. And so I was thinking about that story. And then female friends telling me about this kind of concept of you turn 50 and suddenly you're invisible. And I thought it might be interesting to marry those two. And that was sort of the launching point for the novel was that concept that, you know, we have a 50 year old woman who now starts breaking into houses. And so I, you know, went online and found that there's lock picking clubs, hundreds of lock picking clubs all over the place. And I was kind of shocked because I thought like they always say, you know, what you get out of it is, you know, empowerment and a sense of community and, you know, other good things. But I thought you have to assume that some of these people are using the skill for, you know, uh, other than good reasons. And so I kind of incorporated that into it as well. And I just thought this would be like an interesting approach to a midlife crisis. So B breaks into a number of houses and she experiences a lot of varied emotions inside them, but it feels like we never quite know 
where the line is, you know, what is too far for her? And does she feel guilt is one of the really interesting questions the book raises. Does she do anything wrong, in fact? And I wonder if you could explore that for us. I think she's conflicted that some part of her knows that this is, it isn't just invading the house. I had a friend whose house had been broken into when he was a child, you know, and a few things were stolen, but the house had been kind of half trashed. And he said, you know, it left this impression for years afterwards, this sort of sense of vulnerability that you're this sort of sanctuary that you understand as a nine-year-old can be invaded. You don't, you don't know who did it. You don't know if they're coming back. And so she knows at some point that she could be causing, you know, tremendous stress and worry, introducing that into someone's lives. And then I think she kind of, she looks at it also that, you know, there's a case where she breaks into a house and she senses that this couple might be planning on killing themselves. And so she tries to do something to help. And so I think there's a sense of this balances out the bad, but I think she knows that some part of her is introducing this level of disquiet into someone's life. Did you have to do a lot of research on lock picking? You know, I did, but I didn't actually, I was going to join a club because there's a bunch in Toronto and I was going to join. And then I thought, you know, if I join the club, I'll end up like using the club in the book and you know, using those people. And I thought maybe I don't need to know that much. And I experimented a bit at home without a great deal of success. Like it's harder than it looked in the videos anyway. And so I guess the short answer is I couldn't break into either of your homes if <laughs> that, I guess. Yeah, so I did break into a car once and it's my only thing I've ever broken into. But years ago, there was neighbors across the street who had an old Toyota, the kind you could still like put a coat hanger in and, and I could see they'd locked their keys in there. And I went out to help them. I brought a coat hanger on and I actually unlocked the car and, you know, got their keys. And they were incredibly grateful for about 60 seconds. And then they, they all stopped and they stepped away and they started talking another language. And they looked at me with like deep suspicion. And I'd gone from kind of hero to criminal in, in inside <laughs> of a minute. So yeah, it's a kind of double-edged sword. <laughs> that makes me want to ask about people who've read this book and particularly, you know, friends of yours, have they wondered about you being inside their houses? Um, they haven't, but I did use, you know, it's not autobiographical, as I said, but I did use certain aspects of either my own life or someone else's life. And in, in one case, there's a scene in the book where B's 50th birthday, at B's 50th birthday, the caterer gives her a brownie that has marijuana in it, and she unwittingly takes it and gets wildly stoned. And this was a friend of mine, her son lived in the basement, and someone had given him a banana bread that was laced with THC as a birthday present. And she she was leaving and going to the hairdresser and it was the banana bread was sitting on the counter and so she had two big slices and then she was sitting at the hairdresser and she said I was looking in the mirror and my face started to melt and she said I thought I was having a stroke and so but I ran out of the hairdresser and I was on the street and I wanted to say something but I realized I couldn't talk so someone on the street thought she was having a stroke as well and phoned an ambulance and they came over and you know injected her with something and and then she realized this is what had happened Happened. And she said she was stoned for three days and she was on jury duty and, and it was a murder trial. Like a curb your enthusiasm episode. And, you know, and I said, you know, was the guy guilty? And she said, well, sometimes he looked like 
super innocent. And sometimes he looked like really guilty. So she was just kind of in this sort of stoned haze. So I borrowed that story and kind of, you know, reworked it for the book. There is quite a bit of humor in the book. One of my favorite parts is B makes a friend in the lockpicking club, Will. And Will actually gets caught. And he goes to jail. And when B is going to visit him, she thinks to herself that it's ironic that Will's locked up. And she wonders if he could break out if he wanted to. And I guess given all of the serious things that are happening in, in B's life and in the book with the mother with dementia and the failing marriage and a lot of painful memories that B is going through as well as she's looking through her mother's old photographs and trying to catalog those. Did you find it difficult to kind of balance the humorous aspects with the serious aspects of the work? Uh, you know, not really. I thought there was sort of, it was a natural space for a kind of dark humor in a way. And, and even though there's, you know, tragic events in the book, I thought, you know, it's in a way, it's a kind of coping mechanism, you know, the dark humor. And I thought that this would be, and I had done it before in a previous novel where, so it was a kind of balance that I enjoy, I guess, as a writer and that I was comfortable with. So I knew early on that that would be a component of the book. One of the jokes I loved, but I also thought of as, as a provocation talking of this book being provocative, is a question Beatrice asks herself about whether men are getting more and more useless. <laughs> I was thinking of it this morning because I had to take my car to the garage. Uh, the lights have gone. Of course, I have no clue about any of this stuff. And the, the guy in the garage, who's just a little bit older than me, is one of the only people my age I know who can fix things, who can actually do stuff. Uh, so <laughs> I guess my question to you is, are men getting more and more useless? Is she right? Well, you know, I, I have this feeling that we are and, and it, you know, not based on any hard evidence, but I just, you know, I remember as a kid, someone in the neighborhood would buy a new car and all the fathers would be, you know, looking at it, they'd open the hood, all these sort of short haired, capable looking men. And they'd look at the engine and they would know what the distributor was and everything. And, you know, among my friends and colleagues, if we opened the hood of anything, you know, it would just, we wouldn't be able to identify anything, let alone fix anything. And so I think, you know, we've drifted away from that. And I, you know, where I live, there's a lot of kind of outdoor patios on the on the main street. And, you know, they're almost exclusively habited in the middle of the day. It's only men. There's groups of men sitting there smoking and, and drinking coffee. And, you know, I walk by and think, you know, are all their wives, you know, working or doing something, you know, useful? And they're just sort of sitting there talking about how the government's dysfunctional uh, for four hours every day. So, yeah, I think maybe we are. Um. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's another similar riff about everything going on too long these days. And <laughs> again, I'm wondering, does everything go on too long or is this just because those the characters in the book are, are growing old and less tolerant? Well, you know, that, it's a, that's a good question because, you know, every time my wife and I go to, you know, any play, any movie, any symphony. And on the way home, we find ourselves editing it all the time and saying they could have cut out that midsection or they could have, <laughs> the ending went on too long. Like everything is too long. And we don't know if it's just because we think it would have been better or now we're at an age where everything's too long uh, and we just don't have the tolerance for it. And I think, again, this is sort of like a, like a pandemic influenced behavior where, you know, we 
would sit and watch television streaming different series. And, you know, we'd bail in the middle of series and we'd start new ones. And, you know, there's a scene in the book where everyone's at a party and they can't remember various things. I've been at dinner parties where you're trying to remember the one series you liked and you can't even remember the title of the one that you liked, let alone the 55 that you bailed on. And they're just like, things were just sort of going through us in a way they didn't used to culturally that, you know, that used to sort of stick, at least with me. And and now it just sort of, you know, it flows in and flows out. And so the length of things becomes a problem. And I don't know if it's a function of age or not. I was struck in the book about, again, the characters, you know, it's not just B and Sang, but they've got two other couples that they're good friends with, and they have, you know, dinner parties within their homes. And there's a lot of focus on memories of better times, you know, like we were happy then as a couple or, you know, just kind of hearkening back to past times without kind of maybe thinking about or or maybe it's more accurate to say knowing quite how to make their presence, their present time a happier time. And thinking about B and this hobby and it almost becomes I don't know, maybe a habit for her of of breaking into homes. Do you think that this changes her? Does it make her present any happier or more palatable? Or does it put her on a footing to kind of become happy? I don't know if it's happiness, but I think that there is, that it gives her a sense of, there's a sense of excitement, I guess, in her life and a, and a sense of drama and that everything else is sort of flatlined and not necessarily in a terrible way, but just that there's an absence of kind of drama and purpose. And even though this is a kind of odd and frivolous activity, that it gives her this sense of accomplishment and this kind of quiet secret that she carries around that I think she feels there's a value to that. And, you know, and I think there is this sort of, you know, the trick of nostalgia. We look back and think, you know, the times were better back then. And again, you know, there, this could be kind of pandemic related where you, you know, suddenly dinner parties cease to exist. And then now that we're able to get back together, we have fewer of them than we did back then. So I think there is this sort of sense of kind of looking back fondly on another time. And I, in a way, there's, I think she's trying to reclaim some of that. And this is, you know, this is how she's doing it. And as well as that nostalgia and desire for the better past, there is her anxiety about the future and personified by her son, Thomas. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about him and how, where he sits in the world. Yeah, I think, you know, he's in another city. He's in Montreal taking an arts degree and not sure what he wants to do. And I think, you know, if you kind of look generationally, when I look back at my father's generation, for example, there was this, you know, very linear kind of programmatic career path. And, you know, people would get out of university and start something and they would continue for the next 35 years there. And then with my generation, you know, less so. And now with this next generation where, you know, they could have not just eight jobs, but eight different careers, basically, that are unrelated. And that that landscape is so much, in a way, it's much more open, but it's also much less secure. And just this sense of kind of less of a foundation than existed, especially two generations ago, you know, a foundation in terms of, you know, the decline of religion and, you know, the kind of decline of community and families are much more dispersed and all those things. And I think 
that sense of, you know, the, the future becomes a, a much more uh, threatening place, I think, for him, for Tom. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it, it's almost frightening. I mean, he's at McGill University. He's doing pretty well in all kinds of ways. But there is this sense of real drift about him and the question of where he can even drift to, what options there are. And, and you know, my son is actually at McGill, but he wasn't at McGill when I started the book. And now, of course, he feels like it's about him, and he, but he's actually nothing like Thomas in the book. <laughs> but it's very hard to kind of convince him. So um, Some of, you know, we talked about it, a great deal of the anxiety in the book is just everyone being aware of the environment and the climate. And it seemed to me that while the descriptions in the book felt very realistic, it seemed to be that the the book was put in the context of maybe a climate that's a little bit worse than what we are experiencing today. Insofar as I think at one point over the course of the summer, there's a statement in the book that like 36,000 people died in New York City from the heat. But I wondered if you did a lot of research or any research really to kind of think about where the climate is going at whatever future date you thought you might anticipate this book happening? You know, I didn't specifically, I did some research about this, but I, I had been working on a book about glaciers, like a nonfiction book about glaciers before this and kind of put it aside. But I've been interviewing glaciologists and especially those that were dealing with the melting glaciers in the Rocky Mountains. And that sense of you know, just how connected the ecosystem is. And once you, you know, once you pass a certain size and scale of these glaciers, it affects so many different things. And I just kind of had that in my in the back of my head in terms of all these little things that are having, you know, it's not quite the butterfly effect as the, you know, as they say, where the butterfly flaps its wings, you have a tornado two weeks later, 500 miles away. But there's something like that happening now where you have, you know, those shots of New York, you know, Quebec wildfire. So this is probably 800 miles away. And yet the footage of New York, it just looked absolutely apocalyptic with kind of these red skies. It looked like a science fiction movie. And I thought, you know, we're going to get more of those and in different ways and in ways that we don't anticipate. And so I kind of put all that into Beatrice's head. Yeah, it's definitely unsettling. And it made me think that, gee, maybe this type of future depicted in the book where there's a real shortage of goods in the grocery stores, you know, especially produce, and where every day it seems like the heat is just inescapable and you never know when it's going to break. It felt believable. It, it felt real in a way that I think you know, there's an awful lot of cli-sci fiction out there, but a lot of it is imagining something that feels a little more, maybe I'm being optimistic, more futuristic and a little less tangible. This felt so very tangible. I found it to be very impactful. Oh, good. Well, you know, I when I moved to Toronto, I moved here in 81. And the year I moved here, there was a problem with, you know, right on Lake Ontario and near the city, I guess there'd been sewage coming out into the lake and the fecal coliform count was something like 20 times higher than what is, you know, good for human safety. And the first solution by city council was to raise the safety limit by 20 times. And so the existing level would be okay. And I thought, this is sort of where we're at right now. We're, we're just not approaching this issue with any a kind of seriousness or legitimate solutions. And, you know, you, you look at COP28, the United Nations Climate Conference going on right now, which is taking place in Dubai, you know, the seventh largest 
oil producer. And I just think this is sort of sums up sort of the moment we're in right now, where we're on the brink of so many things, and yet we're not far enough into a disaster to really change our behavior. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, Don, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It was really great to talk to you after just enjoying this book so very much. And I want to encourage all of our listeners out there to go out to your local independent bookstore and pick up a copy of Breaking and Entering by Don Gilmore, published by Biblioasis, that mighty little publisher in Windsor, Canada. Thank you, Don. Thanks so much for having me. 